Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. We usually record Start Your Week on Monday morning, but this week we're doing it on Sunday night because there's only one story and we needed Arthur Snell from the panel here to talk about it. There is only one story and it'll probably be changing already as you hear this. The government in Afghanistan has collapsed. President Ashraf Ghani has fled to Tajikistan, we think. A refugee crisis is growing and it appears that the entire Western involvement in Afghanistan has come to a crashing halt in what looking increasingly like a humiliation on historic scale. Um, so with me is Arthur Snell, former diplomat and anti-terrorist program head. He was himself in Helmand Province around 2010. Hello, Arthur. How are you? Uh, well, I'm I'm fine. Obviously, an extraordinary day and extraordinarily awful if you're an Afghan. Yeah, I mean, this time last week, we were talking about how the Taliban are strong in rural conservative areas, possibly weaker in urban areas, possibly less likely to be able to make those inroads. It has happened with astonishing and shocking speed. They've been taking cities all week. Now they've taken Kabul. How did it all fall apart so quickly? Well, the first thing I should say, to be completely transparent with our listeners, is that I I didn't see this coming. In fact, on the contrary, I thought that there would be some kind of a stalemate and then a, a long protracted negotiation over the fate of Kabul. Um, how did it all happen so quickly? I think fundamentally, we always knew that the Afghan government was weak. And I'm not talking about military weakness, a lack of weaponry, a lack of soldiers, but simply it didn't succeed in projecting sort of its power, its image, its franchise onto the people of Afghanistan. But I think we underestimated just how weak it was. So when it came to the crunch, what's interesting about this extraordinary surge by the Taliban is that very little actual fighting happened. Very few weapons were fired. Very few people have have been killed or injured. What's been happening is districts and huge military units have just been turning over to the Taliban forces province by province because nobody looks at the government in Kabul and thinks that they have any chance of holding the ring, of maintaining control. And therefore, why would you fight and die for something that you know isn't going to happen? Dan Jarvis has called it a humiliating end to 20 years of sacrifice and misplaced effort. Do you think he's right? I think he's largely right. So certainly misplaced effort. I mean, the argument will rage for years probably about the overall validity of the effort versus the validity of the decision to leave with very short notice and to leave completely, to sort of leave nothing behind and basically sort of, you know, leave the key under the mat and walk away. There is the argument being made, and I've heard people like Rory Stewart make this argument, that the current commitment prior to the drawdown in, you know, the preceding couple of months was actually pretty limited. So we're not talking about the huge numbers that troops were in Afghanistan back in 2014, 2015. We're talking talking about already a reduced number. And so the question about misplaced effort, there's definitely a question about the, I think, uh, 400 British soldiers, roughly, that died in Helmand, about the much larger number, of course, of, of other coalition soldiers, and of course, the much large, larger number of Afghans. But there's a separate question about whether or not the manner of departure is the reason for this collapse or whether, in fact, you know, this collapse was inevitable. What, what are you hearing about what's actually happening there? I mean, you have your own contacts amongst British people still in, in Kabul and in Afghanistan. Yeah, right. So I've, I've been keeping in touch both with, with sort of people on the ground and, and some Afghan uh, people that I'm still in touch with. Uh, so... The, the president, well, the former president, Ashraf Ghani, has left the country. 
as you said. The Taliban have taken over. There's been very little fighting. The Taliban have insisted publicly that they don't want to have a battle over Kabul, a city of four million people, and of course, many, many more displaced people having come in. And so right now, I think there is, I wouldn't say there's calm, but there is a very sort of uneasy kind of sense of expectation uh, reigning in the city. The biggest issue right now, I think, facing Afghanistan in the immediate sort of coming weeks is the difference between the Afghan political leadership, and these are people based in Doha, and the the Taliban political leadership, I should add, based in Doha, in, in Qatar. They are, you know, within the context of the Taliban, slightly at the more moderate end. They're the ones that negotiate with the sort of international community, and they're the ones who are putting out these reassuring messages about how we don't want any violence, you know, women should still be allowed to carry on their activities within certain, you know, limitations, girls should still go to school. So you've got them on one hand in Doha trying to be reassuring, and then you've got the actual people on the ground, the ones who walk around with their Kalashnikovs, who are the actual frontline forces. And I think the challenge will be whether or not those frontline forces will can resist the temptation to claim the spoils of war, which ultimately in the sort of anarchic environment of Afghanistan is something that many might feel they're entitled to do. We have been hearing really distressing stories about Afghan children and women being separated uh, from their families. Obviously, there is a huge apprehension about what's going to happen to women in particular under the new regime. One group of people that's under specific threat are Afghanis who helped Britain. Uh, in the course of uh, its involvement in the country. And the writer Dan Trilling tweeted, I think today, senior military sources say the Home Office is reluctant to give many of these people asylum because of the message it will send to all the refugees. I found that especially shaming that we are unwilling to fast track or countenance special treatment for people whose lives are in danger because they helped us. I mean, am I right to think? It's devastating. And, and I, in addition to that tweet, there was another thread that you might have seen. It's worth looking up from, from Charlie Herbert, who's a retired British general. And he was talking specifically, he knows of at least eight or nine cases of people who'd worked as interpreters for the British, who'd filed all the correct paperwork, who'd, who'd ticked all the right boxes, and they've had their uh, applications refused by the Home Office no reason given, no right of appeal. It's absolutely sickening. And, you know, we talk a lot about the Home Office in its different ramifications on this podcast. And, I, and I, I'm nothing less than disgusted by what's happened there. Are we really back to 2001 then? I mean, is there, are these Taliban, you mentioned there's, there's a difference between the leadership in Doha and the fighters on the ground. Are these Taliban of 2021 the same as the group who fostered al-Qaeda back in the early 2000s? Well, They aren't in one important respect, which is simply the passage of time. A lot of these people may not even have been born in 2001, which is an extraordinary thought. There has been, you know, the the population of Afghanistan is a very young population, as is not abnormal in, in a developing country. And the other thing is that, like any other organization, I mean, the Taliban may not be described as an organization, it's more of a movement, it's a very loose agglomeration of different people with different interests, different tribal groups, different regional interests, and so on. One of the things that both the leadership and certainly some of the more sort of strategic thinkers within the Taliban will be well aware of was that in 2001, you know, basically, they blew it, they blew it because they acted in a way that was provocative, 
to the outside world and particularly to America in, in the context of Al-Qaeda and the activities of, of bin Laden around 9-11. And that was what ended their control over Afghanistan. It wasn't any internal factor. It was their kind of failure to manage their external relations. So I suspect, not because they're better people or because they've become more moderate or nicer or whatever, but just from a purely pragmatic perspective, I suspect the Taliban now are going to be more careful about how they sort of interact with the international community. But the other thing to take on board is absolutely unambiguously, you know, the West, particularly America, has walked away from Afghanistan. You know, they couldn't make it more clear they're not interested. So now, actually, it's the regional powers which are the ones that really matter. And that we're talking now about China and Pakistan above all others, and then to some extent Turkey also in the mix. I mean, as, as someone who knows literally nothing about this stuff, my first thought when you said that about the Taliban being careful is, well, one thing that is different now is they know that there is no way on earth that the West will intervene on anything that they do. So that makes them, I suppose, less likely to be cautious towards the West. Would I be, would I be wrong to think that? Well, I think... Well, I think there's different types of intervention. I think it's perfectly easy to imagine uh, fairly punitive airstrikes. Not that I think they're particularly effective, but I don't think anything would sort of hold back, you know, the US and other Western powers from doing that if they thought it was in their interest. Whereas if we if we think back to the late 90s, you know, a completely different era when Bill Clinton was in power and the biggest story was Monica Lewinsky, even the act of launching airstrikes on Taliban Afghanistan was a highly contested controversial issue that was you know that, that was not by any means seen as straightforward so that sort of thing you know i think we have changed significantly but but you're absolutely right no one is going to put boots on the ground in any foreseeable future that i think any of us can can perceive you mentioned China and Pakistan. I keep reading across Twitter involvement of Pakistan in this and Qatar as well in this historic sort of, well, you don't want to call it a changeover of power, this collapse of a regime and this flooding in of a new Taliban leadership. Can you tell us a little bit about Pakistan and Qatar's involvement in particular? Sure. So Pakistan is a historic involvement. The, the Taliban originated in Pakistan. The name Taliban, as I'm sure lots of people know, means student. And it came from the students that were in the madrasas, the Islamic schools in Pakistan. And they were Afghan refugees who had, who had, who had been displaced by the previous civil war in Afghanistan. And, and this movement grew up there and then swept back into power with significant backing and resourcing from Pakistan's ISI, its intelligence agency, which has seen Afghanistan as an environment that they can dominate as a kind of counterweight to what they see as a threat from India. So that's that's the backstory. But coming forward to 2021, some have argued that the the kind of the strength of the relationship between Pakistan and the Afghan Taliban is not as strong as it was. It is argued that that the degree to which the so-called Quetta Shura bit of the of the Taliban, which is the bit that Pakistan is closest to, it is argued that that is less clearly in control of events as they occur now. Um, so that's that's Pakistan. They have definitely played a very very complex double game. Of course, Pakistan is a recipient of significant quantities of Western aid, and yet at the same time, they've continued to give resources and and logistic support to the Taliban. Qatar is a more recent development. So um, we've talked already about this this sort of uh, Taliban political office in Doha, the capital of of Qatar. And and that's something where 
Qatar, as we all know, they're the hosting the World Cup. It's a small country with big ambitions. They like to put themselves on the world stage. There's the World Cup. They, of course, are the, the home of Al Jazeera, highly influential TV news channel these days across you know, the Middle East and the wider Muslim world. And they have had this sort of habit of reaching out to, to the sort of the regimes and players that other people don't like to touch, particularly when it's on a kind of Islamist, more uh, sort of hardline Muslim perspective. So that kind of gives us the background of where Qatar fits in. Now, in both of these cases, of course, a lot of people in the West, very understandably, kind of say, well, what the hell? You know, these people are supposed to be our allies. We have good relations with Qatar. We have good relations with Pakistan. And yet they seem to be supporting our enemies. Well, you know, it's a complicated world. And a lot of Western diplomats and, and you know, intelligence people and so on find it rather useful that our own allies in the region have these relationships. So it's, you know, we're all playing these sort of complex double games um, and Qatar and, and Pakistan are in that mix. You mentioned the caution thing a moment ago. How likely is it that uh, Afghanistan could again become an incubator of terrorism as Boris Johnson has been essentially pleading with them not to do? Well, you know, that's a sort of trillion dollar question. I mean, the conventional view, which is ex widely expressed, is that, you know, the Taliban are a fundamentalist, Islamist, uh, militant group. Uh, they will make the common cause with any number of hardline militant jihadist groups. Al-Qaeda itself, you know, some people argue that Al-Qaeda is, is a bit of a busted flush, but it hasn't disappeared. You know, it still has ambitions. There are still people that that exists in that space. And there are other, you know, the, the uh, Islamic State exists as a separate entity inside Afghanistan. And of course, there could be other groups that, that come in. in. In the past, various sort of Central Asian Islamist groups found, found sort of safe spaces in, in Afghanistan. My own view is that uh, without any sense of complacency, that the degree to which that is going to happen, it's certainly not going to be in the way that it happened prior to 9-11. So prior to 9-11, it was glaringly obvious. There were, there were huge physical camps that existed, training camps, you know, effectively, you know, major visible physical headquarters of Al-Qaeda sitting there in Afghanistan. And, you know, before 9-11, the world didn't take it seriously enough. And of course, then that happened and, and, and everything changed. So it seems to me that, again, the world has moved on so much in two ways. One, Obviously, in spite of everything that's happened, there's still going to be a lot of attention on Afghanistan. You still have to assume that the spy satellites and the networks and all these other you know, methods by which Western countries and other countries keep, keep an eye on what's going, they're still going to be doing that. So that's one important point. But I think the second point is actually the nature of terrorism has changed significantly. So the 9-11 attacks were a classic example of a centrally directed complex attack. You know, if you think about all those people who had to get on the right planes at the right time, be in place and carry out that hideous acts, it was a complex, highly sophisticated operation. Now, contemporary terrorism, we've had this kind of, if you like, sort of popularization and, and kind of franchise model for contemporary jihadist terrorism. The classic terrorist attack in the West now is one or two individuals, low tech, they're just using a van, they're mowing people down, they might take knives and run amok in a, in a crowded place or something. Now, you don't need 
a terrorist hideout in Afghanistan to plan that kind of attack. You just need an internet connection because that's how you get radicalized. That's how you get ideas. That's how you learn about what other people have done. So I think there's a lot of people are, are kind of obsessing about the late 90s, about the pre 9-11 era. And that's not necessarily where contemporary kind of global jihad now is. I'm going to ask finally about the meaning for politics in the US and the UK, because, well, it's less important than the me- the, what all this means for Afghani refugees and the people who are going to be living under this new regime. Joe Biden said in July that the Taliban is not the North Vietnamese army. There's going to be no circumstance where you see people being lifted off a roof of an embassy of the United States from Afghanistan. And that is pretty much what we're now seeing. How about a humiliation for the US in general and Biden in particular is this? I don't think if you're, you know, Biden's most sort of vigorous supporter, I don't see how you can argue that this is anything other than a huge embarrassment. And particularly, you know, Biden made statements which many, many people who know much more about it than I do agreed with at the time, which was that however bad the Taliban are, they're never going to get all the way to Kabul. They're not going to, as you say, you're not going to see the helicopter on the roof of the embassy. I mean, there's a photo going doing the rounds on Twitter, which you might have seen, which is literally the yeah. shot from Saigon and the, the, the shot from, um, you know, from Kabul, it, it could be the same building. It's extraordinary to imagine. But then there is a tiny bit of truth in what President Biden said. The Taliban does not have a single army under a single chain of command. It's a very, very loose collection of different people with different interests. As we observed earlier, the way this thing unfolded was a, a question of loads of people in different places switching side for different reasons, often to do with local things. So the Taliban could fall apart quite quickly as well. But having said all of that, it is absolutely clear, not just Joe Biden, but the entire sort of panoply of those advising him have completely misread this. And and I, one of the people that I follow, not not a, a US expert, but somebody who I rate incredibly highly, he himself said on Twitter today, you know, that we didn't understand the Taliban. You know, we had failed to appreciate in how incredibly effective they are as, as, as a sort of guerrilla force. But I think going back to the, the politics in the US, I don't see how it's not, whilst it's a big humiliation for Biden, it's not incredibly obvious that it's going to be easy for the Republicans sort of make hay from this. I mean, of course, they'll try. I mean, let's face it, they're the most cynical politicians in the Western world. But mm. let's just not forget that President Trump's plan had the forces leaving in May, not July. So, I mean, you know, the, the, it, it, it would be impossible for the Republicans to kind of demonstrate this was this was a sort of Democrat thing that had gone wrong. So I, I think it's going to be a bit hard for, for this to turn into a really sort of serious domestic political issue. And I think the other thing is maybe Biden is right. You know, maybe ordinary Americans don't care about this very much. I mean, it's not for me to tell them whether they should care or shouldn't care. And clearly the human cost for the Afghans, you know, a country that's gone through 40 years of civil war, continues to be awful. But maybe actually people aren't that bothered. I don't know. Which is an immensely depressing thought. Because what it means is America has retreated from the world. And and Mm. there's a horrible irony, because if you think about you know, just thinking about Britain for a moment, you know, one of the sort of ideas about Brexit was global Britain. And, you know, global Britain, while we're big players, we can mix it with the Americans, we can mix it, you know, with, with, with a kind of wider uh, global community. Well, you know, our number one partner 
is America, which has what's interesting is there's a consistency between Trump and Biden that they're both actually they're about little America. They're about looking inwards. And you could argue, well, they need to because there's so much political tension and you know problems within the country. But whether or not that's right or wrong, here are we, little global Britain, and, and our main partner that isn't interested anymore. You know, they're, they're trying to sort of ignore the rest of the world and you know pretend it's gone away. And, and I think that leaves us very exposed. One worrying thing I read today was that this is going to be seen as evidence that any security guarantee from the West is basically worthless. Uh, and so, I mean, as you said earlier, unstable nations are going to tend to, well, in Afghanistan's case, uh, China and Pakistan, but, you know, Russia or even India are also available for guarantees. I mean, is, is that likely? Is this is this the last gasp of Western interventionalism? Well, I certainly think it is that. And I think I think there's two, two sort of important points to draw out there. The, the problem with West Western interventions is that even before the epic events of the last week, you know, all the other ones have basically gone wrong, Iraq, Libya, Syria, whatever. So the track record, and I speak as someone who worked in a lot of these environments, the track record is pretty abysmal. So the West's kind of brand on its ability to go to other countries and intervene and make them better is already highly tarnished. I think the second thing that's possibly more important is that the willingness of whether we call them our adversaries or, or just other major global powers, to exploit this message and use it to undermine, uh, you know, effectively in, in an information war, to use it against us. That, in a way, it seems to me, that's the real power. Because ultimately, I don't think the Chinese Communist Party has any great interest in the well-being of the ordinary Afghan people. But sure as hell, they're going to be able to use this to exploit this and, and to sort of hammer home this message that, you know, ultimately you can't trust the Americans, you can't trust the Brits, they show up, they do this stuff, they clear off, they leave you to your, you know, to your fate. And so I think both the credibility of the West and the ability of the West's opponents to use this against us is, is now, uh, you know, is hugely enlarged, I guess. Finally, what's the Afghanistan book that's going to be written in 20 years going to be like? Is there going to be a, a bright shining lie of Afghanistan? There certainly should be. I mean, I think we're, we're seeing a lot of people are just, you know, sort of grappling with the extraordinary, you know, bizarreness of the events of the last, you know, the last week. J- just to sort of put a bit of personal detail onto this, uh, I, I was just loosely involved with trying to help someone, uh, you know, get out of Afghanistan. Uh, this is someone who who is an Afghan, you know, yes, they, they have a British passport, but someone who has spent most of their life working there, this is their country. This is someone who's who's seen endless cycles of war, of conflict, of governments that can't deliver. And now they're facing yet another chapter of this sort of endless story. You know, the problem is we get into these cliches of the graveyard of empires and all the rest of it. But fundamentally, here we are, 2021, 20 years into this war, and we clearly don't understand the Taliban because they have been able to pull off arguably one of the greatest sort of guerrilla campaigns of all time. And they've done it. They've completely outfoxed the greatest military power of the age. But they've also outfoxed an Afghan army that as much as it's easy for us to criticize it, you know, it was well equipped. It did have well-trained officers. And, you know, it was part of an Afghan state that had gradually been sort of increasing its capacity in, in the last 20 years. In my kind of, you know, guy on the sidelines capacity, I always sort of saw the invasions of uh, Afghanistan and Iraq as 
like an attempt to expiate the memory of Vietnam by kind of rerunning it with a happy ending or, or rather with the ending that the kind of American military and political leadership wanted. And now it feels like it actually has been an exact rerun in that it's ended in the same way, in the same humiliation with, with nothing to show for it. Yeah, I mean, I think it, obviously those comparisons are there. And I think there may also be in an unhelpful way through the 90s, if, if we sort of think back to that era, there were interventions in, in really quite small countries that ultimately you could sort of force through by sheer weight of arms. And I'm thinking about Kosovo, I'm thinking about East Timor, I'm thinking about Sierra Leone specifically for Britain. So there may also have been a factor where Western countries looked at some of those case studies and sort of started to believe their own publicity. And I think Tony Blair certainly did, and 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 the Americans also, undoubtedly, and and this belief that the world could be reshaped by an all-powerful capitalist West, you know, was very prevalent. And and the difficulty is that we, what we've learned is that we simply don't seem to have the ability to do these incredibly complicated operations, and we don't have the staying power. And you know, at the end of the day, we are able to walk away, and of course. We'll all go to bed safe tonight, you know, not very different from how we were a week ago. And meanwhile, the people of Afghanistan are living in unimaginable chaos. Arthur, thanks for joining me and explaining what's happening on this. Well, it's a historic day. People will remember what happened today for a long time. It is immensely depressing. But um, listeners, thanks for listening. Um, Start Your Week will be back next week in a more regular form with uh, the stories ahead in the week. But we felt that we had to cover this today. Um, Arthur, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Listeners, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>